I want to remind you this morning um, that the good news of the gospel is that um, Jesus didn't just leave us here alone and we're not just waiting for his return, um, but that he gave us a purpose, a purpose to image him to the world around us, both in word and deed all the time. And as we think about this city that we live in, um, if, if that's going to be the case, if we're called to into that purpose of saturating the city with the gospel, it's going to take more than just this family that you see right here. It's going to take multiple families around the city actually sharing the good news with their neighbors and their coworkers and, and everyone that they come interacted with. And so that's one of the reasons why um, we are constantly training other people and sending them out. And so this morning, um, Josh is going to come and speak. And Josh is one of, if you know this or not, Josh is one of our SOMA sending interns. And so the plan is to send Josh and the team out to a plant in the near future. And so I'm excited to have Josh come and share from us, uh, share with us in, in this morning. So I want to pray for him, and then, uh, then we'll get started. You can come on up, Josh. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you sent your spirit to guide us. Father, I pray that your spirit would rest upon Josh as he um, shares with us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give him great grace and your spirit would teach us and that you would guide our time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, there is a conviction shared by various writers in history, uh, or various historical writers, that uh, history is a series of key moments in an otherwise undistinguished flow of human life. Years may go by with little of importance happening, uh, but suddenly there will be a crisis. A challenge will emerge And uh, the nature of the next period of history will be determined by how uh, the leaders of that day react to that challenge. Hitler's invasion of Danzig on the last day uh, of August 1939 was like that. So would England go to war like she had said she was going to, or would Hitler be allowed to continue on his uh, announced course of aggression? So that England did go to war, actually carved out uh, the course of Western history for the next, uh, well, the following decades, if not centuries to come, we'll find out. Uh, So the year 520 BC was like that. This uh, crisis emerges and the way that these people handle uh, that crisis um, is going to carve out what the next uh, period of history looks like. So I may not look that way to secular scholars, but uh, there's a reason that this little four-month time period and uh, two chapters were included in uh, God's Word. And so uh, uh, the actions taken here at this point in Israel's history would set the stage for the next era, the next stage in uh, redemption history. So uh, you guys ready to hear about Haggai? Right? That's exciting, right? That's a little hook. Okay, good. All right. I'm glad you're excited about it. I'm I'm excited. Um, We've been hanging out in the Minor Prophets for the last several weeks. Um, so I'm hoping we act, we already have kind of a little bit of a, like a foundation to go on in terms of like the historical context and what the prophet's message was and what they've come to speak to the people of Israel and kind of how that applies to us. So, but just to be safe, I'm going to give a little bit of a historical, a uh, little overview of the historical context to give us, um, kind of some, something to hold on to so we know what we're getting into in this little book. So this is only two chapters. Um, but, uh, so I'm going to give you guys the historical context right now, um, Haggai is probably not the most read book in the room. Probably like half of us have never even like 
like read it. And if we did, we just read it to say we read it, you know, like I read the whole Bible. So I read Haggai. Um, but so, uh, before I get into this, uh, can I just say that the old Testament, like freaking rules. All right. Does anybody else feel So I, I don't know how I feel. some people, I know for when I first became a Christian, the old Testament was like this big, scary thing I didn't understand, you know? And so I was just, let's skip, let's skip over that weird stuff where I don't understand. Let's go to Jesus. I can kind of wrap my mind around that. But, uh, in preparation, so over the past couple of years, but specifically over the last six months, and then in preparation for this sermon, like I've been immersing myself in the in the biblical narrative and the Old Testament story, and it's just like gone to work on me in crazy ways. Like I've learned about myself and about God in ways I didn't expect. I feel like I can see clearer because I've come to understand uh, some of the biblical narrative better and studying it and going into it. And so it's really exciting. That's my plug for the Old Testament. You guys go for it. It's really it's really good stuff. It's the book. It's the, it's the Bible that Jesus read. You know, you think about that. Like when Jesus quoted and read the Bible, like he, that's what he read, right? There was no New Testament. Anyway, Old Testament's awesome. All right, so where are we in redemption history in this little book of Haggai? Where does it fit in uh, the whole biblical narrative? So as I mentioned, Haggai is one of the minor prophets, and for centuries, the Hebrew prophets have been accusing Israel. Um, of breaking their covenant with God uh, through idolatry and injustice. And they warned that if Israel did not repent of their idolatry, their worship of other gods, um, and their evil and injustice, that God was going to punish them. That he was going to send the great empire of Babylon to come, take them out, destroy their city, and carry them off into exile. So, and uh, all this came about, this punishment that the prophets had been uh, warning of, this all came about in the year 587 BC, when the Babylonian Empire came and annihilated Jerusalem and carried off all the Israelites into, um, into exile in Babylon. It's, that's crazy. I think a lot of times we just, like, when we read these Old Testament stories, we think about, like, just think about that for a second. Like, you are living in this city, you're God's chosen people, and all of a sudden, this huge military comes, destroys everything you know and love, kills your family, likely, carries all of you, you and your family off into a whole other, 900 miles away to a new city. Like, that's crazy. So, this isn't the end of the story, though. Uh, the, the prophets believed there was still hope. And that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people, Israel, uh, to live in a new Jerusalem where God would live in their midst. This is kind of the message that the prophets have been uh, speaking. Um, So this is is like the basic message so far. So now when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after... uh, after Israel has been conquered and the Israelites have been carried off into exile. The Babylonian Empire has collapsed at this point, kind of as empires do, just kind of collapse in on itself. And it's now the whole known world, the, West, the whole known world at this point is being ruled by the Persians. Okay? So uh, the Persians are actually pretty cool, despite what the movie 300 says. You know, like people liked them. Like whenever they came and conquered your area, they were just kind of like, look, you guys, you don't have to come over to a new city. We're not going to exile you. Just pay me my money and it's fine. You can worship however you want, worship your God, do whatever. As long as you're paying taxes, we don't care. So when the Persians uh, began ruling the world, basically, they said, the, uh, King Cyrus said, all right, anyone who wants to go home, you guys are in, you Israelites in Babylon, you guys can go home if you want. You can stay in Babylon, you can go back and rebuild your city, whatever. I don't care. And so under the, uh, under the leadership of, the high, of a high priest named Joshua and uh, a newly appointed governor named Zerubbabel, um, this small group, uh, or a small group of Israelites, uh, decided to go home uh, and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and rebuild their lives in Jerusalem. 
So at this point in the biblical narrative, our hopes are high for Israel, right? Things have not been going good. The prophets have been saying, you guys are constantly disobeying. You guys are, you know, going against God and he's going to bring punishment. So, but now, okay, good news. You get to go home, all right? You get to rebuild your city. So our hopes are high for Israel. Um, Things have been looking bad, but now they're looking up. So the future seems bright, but it's not, unfortunately, at least not from Haggai's perspective. Um... So, uh, so at this point where Haggai comes on the scene, the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem and they've been living there for about 15 years. So we're, we're going to turn to in Haggai. The Israelites have gone off into exile. They've come back. They've been living in Jeru- Jerusalem for about 15 years. And we learn uh, from the first few chapters of Ezra uh, that when they, when they got back, they started building the temple um, they, and uh, they ran into some complications with some of the local people who had been living in the ruined city that they left, ran into some complications, they got distracted or discouraged, and they quit. So they laid the foundation, they had a temple and, uh, or they had a foundation for the temple, and they had an altar, so they were bringing sacrifice. Essentially, they had the bare minimum uh, to fulfill their religious requirements. Um, so, so let's get into the actual book itself. The book consists, uh, the book of Haggai consists of four sections, okay? Uh, and they're, they summarize Haggai's message to the people. And so there's two chapters, four sections. And so ideally this would be like a four-part sermon series, right? But uh, I have today. So I, after a lot of thinking, praying, reading, and sermon listening to, and trying to synthesize this and figure out uh, how to do this, I pulled out three kingdom principles uh, that I think Haggai is communicating to uh, Israel here that directly apply to us. And so, uh, as I mentioned last time I preached, you know, I was raised a good Southern Baptist, so alliteration is key. All right, so we have three kingdom principles, all Ps. So, first one is kingdom priorities. The second one is kingdom purity. And the third one is kingdom promise. Okay, so I said there's four sections of the book. We're not going to go into all four. We just don't have time. We're going to go into the first three. But we're not even going to do them in order. We're going to go one, three, and two. First, third, and we're going to use those as a context to finish on the second. Um, all right, so uh, let's go ahead and jump into this thing. The first section is kingdom priorities, all right? And that's Haggai 1, 1 to 15 is the first section, the first prophecy. All right, so I'm not going to read all of the book I'm just going to do some, I'm going to paraphrase and I'm going to read sections of it. Um, And so I'm going to read sections from 1, 1 to 15. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiat, whatever, um, governor of Judah and son, uh, and Joshua, son of that word, Jazadek, the high priest. So this is actually, this is huge news. Okay, first of all, pause for a second. This is the first time God has raised up a prophet and brought a word to his people since returning from exile. So this is very exciting, right? This is big news for these returned exiles. And the message is not good. Classic Old Testament prophet, right? Um, so uh, verse 2 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And you know when it starts off like that, like these people, not, it's not going to be good, right? I and mean, I can hear my mom's voice in my head, like I just like, got through doing something really stupid, right? My dad comes home, she's like, you'll never guess what your son has done. And I'm like, oh, I'm your kid too. Like she's temporarily disowned me for that moment. 
That's kind of like what's going on. You know it's not going to be good when it starts off like that. Um, So verse 3 says, uh, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this is where we get some divine sarcasm, which I'm always a fan of. Um, Verse 4 says, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? So paneled houses is just like, Haggai saying like fancy houses. I mean, does anyone, you, you guys think fancy when you hear paneled, right? Huh? I do. I mean, no, but uh, that, that's what he's getting at. They're not living in, they've built up nice houses for themselves while God's house uh, remains in ruin. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it. So what's, what's going on here? What's Haggai talking about? He's painting a picture here of uh, living in perpetual frustration and constant dissatisfaction, right? You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you never have enough. It's perpetual dissatisfaction. Verse 7 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. So who's, who's causing this frustration for the Israelites? Who is bringing these hard circumstances upon the Israelites? Is it Satan? Is it the enemy? It's Yahweh. It's God. God is causing this frustration. I think um, this is a hard truth for us to hear sometimes. The idea that, uh, that God disciplines us, that God disciplines his children. You see, when our priorities are out of whack, God brings, we bring ourselves under God's discipline. See, Hebrews 12, 5, 8 says it, and I'm going to paraphrase this. Um, verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, you're illegitimate and you're not children. So like, God, if he loves us, he's going to discipline us. Uh, I like, Paul Washer uses an illustration. He says, if, if, uh, um, if I see my son, if I see my, my uh, 11-year-old son, I'm driving 11 o'clock at night, I see him out in the park hanging out with a bunch of people doing drugs, like shooting up meth, whatever. If I see him out there, am I just going to keep driving and say, he'll figure it out. Nah, it's, it's not going to go well for him, but that, he'll, he'll get it. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to get out of my car. I'm going to grab him by the collar and pull him into the car. And, he, and I'll discipline him. Why? Because I love him. And that's how God is with us. God is a good father. And he disciplines his children. Why? Because he knows what's best for us. And he knows it's not anything that we think we want. It's not safety. It's not comfort. It's not money. It's him. He knows he's what's best for us. So let's get back into the story. Why has God brought all this misfortune upon his people? Verse 9, why, declares the Lord? Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you busies with his own house. So why has God made their life so difficult? Because they have chosen to value their comfort over their God. They've chosen to prioritize their house, their paneled house, paneled houses over God's house. 
You see, when our spiritual priorities are out of line, we will lead lives of perpetual frustration and dissatisfaction. That's what he's getting at. Now, the application here is just like inescapable for us today, right? So especially when we put this into context. So, you see, these people, and this is what I mean about as I've immersed myself in the biblical story, just kind of like started to realize how much it applies here. So these people were not indifferent to God. These weren't people that are hostile to God. This isn't the old Israel that the prophets were speaking to, always worshiping other gods, always doing, you know, living in this evil and injustice. These were the chosen remnant. These were the, the faithful few, right? These guys made the long, arduous journey back from the comforts of Babylon, 900 miles. I mean, think about that. Like, they don't have planes, trains, and automobiles, right? They, they made this 900-mile trek from Babylon to a ruined city with a sacked temple, no city walls for protection. They made it. Why did they come back? Because Jerusalem is where we worship Yahweh. That's where the temple is. These people are not indifferent or hostile to God. These are the faithful few. So, 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 what, so these are the right people with the right intentions. So what went wrong? Right? Why are they under God's discipline? What happened? Well, life this is what gets me. This life happened. That's all it was, right? They got busy rebuilding a ruined city. They had to create an economy, you know, figuring out how, what it even looks like to survive in this new context. These, most of these people had never even seen Jerusalem, you know? This is 70 years in exile. They come, and so they're trying to just figure out what it looks like to survive. And so meanwhile, God's work gets pushed to the back burner, slowly but surely. They had a foundation for the temple. They had an altar, and they figured, hey, this will do for now. And now 15 years later, they're living in their fancy paneled houses they built for themselves while God's house lies in ruin. Now let me tell you guys, this passage has gone to work on me over the last few weeks. You see, this remnant people, they'd slipped into apathy. They into this place of misplaced priorities. God was still a part of their lives, you know. They were bringing sacrifice. But their priorities were actually on building their own house. Their own houses, their little kingdoms. Do we do this today? Is this could this be us? So as I read this, as I read this little book of Haggai over and over in preparation for today, I kept reading the same. It, this kept coming up. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. I started to think and meditate on those words, and uh, I started to give careful thought to my ways. And as I did that, I became more and more convicted. You see, I think we can have great theology. And we can participate in missional communities and even lead DNA groups, DNA groups all the while. We're actually still focused on our priorities, our goals, our lives, and our accomplishments. We can do all this religious activity and still have our priorities completely out of line. And if you're anything like me, you know that you can engage in religious activity and still feel very far from God. You see, our lives will reflect our priorities. And so with that in mind, I began to pray, uh, and actually, like I said, grow more convicted, and I felt the Lord ask me as I started to examine my ways, Joshua, when's the last time you fasted? When's the last time you pressed into me for a concentrated time of prayer? Not, Not just like in preparation for a sermon or something, but when's the last time you really, just to be with me? When's the last time that you gave to the extent where it actually, you might actually be stretched and have to trust me with your finances? When's the last time you've really gone out of your way to love and pursue somebody that's hard to love, that's actually inconvenient to you? I mean, I don't mean just like buying a homeless man a meal or something like that. I'm talking about like really loving and pursuing somebody when it's actually inconvenient to you. 
So as I started to think about these questions for myself, I was faced with the fact that just like the Israelites, I am often so focused on building my little paneled house rather than focusing on God's. I'm focused on my priorities and goals and accomplishments rather than what God would have for me. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I, I'm not suggesting that we put ourselves under God's discipline by not fasting or not giving or not loving or pursuing somebody. What I am saying is I believe we get there by valuing our comfort, our goals, our paneled houses over God and his work. It's a heart issue, right? It's not about the actions that we do. It's always been about the heart with God. So at its core, this first message of Haggai is a call to examine your priorities, a call to repentance, but it's also a call to action. And I pray that as we, as, as the leaders here at Soma, bring the word, and as we preach these sermons on Sundays, as we go over God's word um, in our missional communities, that it's not just, we don't just learn, but it's a call to, to action. So what happened? What happened next in the story? Actually, this is a good one. The people obeyed, which is so crazy because that never seems to happen in the Old Testament. But this is a really great story where the people actually, they're like, God confronts them on their uh, misplaced priorities and they, they're like, oh crap, you're right. I need to obey. I need to go do this. And they change and they do it. Verse 12 says, uh, then the leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, and the whole remnant people, um, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the, and the message of the prophet Haggai and the people feared the Lord. Verse 13 says, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the people. God says, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders of Joshua and Zerubbabel and all of the remnant people, and they began to work and they began to rebuild the house of the Lord, their God. So what about us today? What about you today? Are, are you feeling frustrated or dissatisfied with, uh, with your circumstances? If so, Haggai is inviting us to consider our ways, okay? Are you sold out today for God's kingdom, or are you focused on building up your little kingdom? If so, you're going to remain frustrated and dissatisfied, which is a tragedy because, because the love and joy and peace and satisfaction of knowing God has been made so incredibly available to us in Jesus, right? Philippians 4 uh, tells us that, that uh, knowing and following Jesus gives us access to like this peace that passes understanding. Matthew 6 uh, says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added unto you. And then John, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 4, Whoever drinks of the water I have for them, they'll never thirst again. He's offering satisfaction in life. Jesus takes our frustration and our dissatisfaction and replaces it with peace and ultimate satisfaction. And this is why we do the work of giving careful thought to our ways and, and, we, and, and aligning our hearts with God's kingdom priorities. So this is, this is that's kind of a summary for like the first message. That's where we're going to land for that one. We're going to skip over the second one and then we're going to go to the third message uh, and we're going to talk about kingdom purity. And this one has a lot of similarities to the, uh, to the second one, actually, but let's get into it. So, kingdom priorities going into kingdom purity. All right, we don't, like I said, we don't have time to read the whole thing, so I'm going to do some summary. This starts in Haggai 2, 10 to 19. So this is the third message, as I said. So the people obeyed the word of the Lord, like I said. Um, and so Haggai comes to the priests and to the people with uh, some questions. So verse 12 says... Um, Verse 2.12 says, uh, 
If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, this kind of gets weird, but stick with me, not too weird. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread, stew, wine, oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest's answer said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest's answer said, it does become unclean. This is where Haggai kind of drops the bomb. He says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now in verse 15, he says, now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon temple, uh, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, how did you fare? He said, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Verse 18 says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from this day on I will bless you. So what's going on here? God is informing or reminding his people that for the past 15 years they've been living in a contaminated state. Haggai says, you know how when you, when you touch a dead body you become unclean? You become ritually unclean or impure? That's the state you've been living in for the last 15 years because of your inverted priorities. You've been living in a state of contamination. You see, they thought that because they had started to rebuild the temple all those 15 years ago, they had, a t- they had the foundation laid, they were bringing sacrifice, they had an altar, they figured, okay, now we're ritually clean, we're ritually pure because of this religious activity. When in fact, even though they were doing this religious activity, just the opposite was true. Actually, because of their inverted priorities and unrepentant hearts, God was saying, the sacrifice you're bringing, all this religious activity, it's contaminated. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. They were living in an impure state. And is this, I don't know about you guys, for me, this word impure, like purity and impurity, it kind of is intimidating to me for some reason when I read it in the Bible. Um, I don't know if anyone else feels that. Uh, I, you know, I, I listen to, I think about the Sermon on the Mound. Blessed are, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I'm like, man, that's, I, I'm not that. <laughs> I want to see God, but I don't, I don't think I'm pure in heart, you know? I think it's, I think it's intimidating because uh, we tend to think of purity in terms of like, like a moral perfection, right? I think of like, I, you know, and I, and I know that I'm super far from that. So I'm not pure, you know. What does that mean for me? That I might, can, I see, can I see God still? So as I was studying this passage and I was studying uh, what the Bible means when it talks about purity, uh, I actually, what I found was actually very helpful, and I will share it with you now. So uh, we often associate purity, I think, um, maybe I'm, I think other people do this, with like this kind of moral perfection. But I think a better way of understanding it often in the way the Bible is using it is, would be to understand it in terms of not moral perfection, but uh, divided loyalties would be another way of understanding it. So when he's saying these people are impure, he's saying their hearts are divided. See, they think that they can be devoted to both their little kingdoms and to my kingdom, to their little paneled houses and to my house, and they believe their religious activity will make up for their divided hearts. But God is all or nothing when it comes to our hearts. He's calling us to pure worship from a pure heart. So for 15 years, 
The Israelites continued in impurity in their divided hearts and they lived lives of perpetual frustration and dissatisfaction all the while thinking that they're just fine with God because of their religious activity. Do we do this today? Is that something that... I, I know I resonate with that very deeply. You know? I'm frustrated. I'm anxious. I'm bitter. Uh, there's unconfessed sin in my life, right? I know that there's something God's calling me to do, but I don't want to do it. Or there's something I know He's telling me to stop, and I don't want to. So, so what do I do? I'll go to family dinner. I'll go to DNA. I'll sing. I might even lift my hands a little bit in worship. Get a little crazy, you know? I'll sing the words and I'll really mean them. I'll tithe. I'll give 11%. You know, really get, you know, really, really sacrifice for the Lord. And God's saying, whenever we're living like in this contaminated state, when, this, when our, divi- our loyalties are divided, he's saying, don't bother. It's contaminated. I don't want that. God doesn't want your religious rituals. He wants our hearts. And it's always been like that, like Old and New Testament. We went through Amos just recently. Uh, and Amos... God says it pretty bluntly. He says, I don't want your burnt offerings and your fattened calves. I'm not even going to look upon them. Take away from me your noisy songs. I'm not listening. Until you repent of your injustice, your evil, your, your divided loyalties, until, you have, until I have your heart, I'm not listening. It's all contaminated worship. Matthew 5, 23 says, um, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, oh, my brother has something against me. He says, leave it. Leave the gift at the altar. Okay, go be reconciled first to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. He's saying, get your heart right first and then come. And the the religious ritual means nothing apart from a heart that's far from God. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, you want to know me? Give me your undivided loyalty and your undivided attention and affection and you've got me. I'm here. We're prone to wander, but he's saying, he doesn't move. He's always there for us. Anytime we want, we just say, okay, Jesus, turn our heart to him. He's there. Doing churchy religious things doesn't make you pure. In the the words of the psalmist, uh, the sacrifices of our God is a uh, broken and contrite heart. He desires that we should see our divided loyalties, repent and give our undivided devotion and attention and affection to his kingdom. And he graciously informs us that until we do this, our lives will be frustrated. We won't be satisfied. We may go through seasons of it might be nice for a little bit, but then it'll be back down. It's up and down. He's saying, he's he's inviting us into this undivided loyalty. So why is it though that uh, we don't just repent of our divided loyalty, right? And put put God first and then enjoy his blessing. Why don't, we, why don't we just do that, you know? It seems like it would make sense. Because just like the Israelites did not believe that God's house was more important than their own house, they didn't believe that God was better. We today, we New Testament Christians today, so often we don't believe that Jesus is better. We don't functionally believe that. We're not convinced that God's way for our life is better than the course that we can plot out for ourselves. Functionally, right? And so what I love about Haggai, this is, this is so good. Haggai, it's just so practical. Haggai is saying, Haggai is saying here, remember, so Haggai is saying, remember this, write it down. I'll read the, actually I'll read the passage first. Uh, verse 18, when verse 18 he says, consider your ways from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from this day on, I will bless you. He says, so basically what Haggai is saying here, he says, remember how bad things were before, 
Whenever you were living in your divided loyalties, your inverted priorities, remember how bad they were. Now, from this point forward where you've turned your heart to God, now you can put it, write it down. Things are good. You're going to be living in God's blessing and in His presence. I had a conversation uh, with Philip Hewitt the other day. He said I could use this uh, as an illustration. And if you don't know Philip, man, like, our conversations we have are just incredible. Like, he's one of the most, like, honest and vulnerable and articulate people that I've ever met. And so... uh, we were talking, he was, he was struggling with some anxiety and some, uh, he was, some bitterness and frustration with a certain circumstance, or some certain circumstances. And, uh, and so we were, we were talking, and this was right as I was going through this sermon, it was very timely. Um, and so we were trying to figure out what was underneath. Like, why, why is it that uh, I'm experiencing this anxiety, this frustration? Um, and so uh, underneath it, uh, and I, like I said, Phil is just incredibly honest, that he's like, honestly... I don't trust that God's way for me is better right now. I feel like the way I can, the, the life I could plan out for myself would be easier and it wouldn't be so hard. God's way just seems unnecessarily hard sometimes. And that's, that's just so true. You know, and I, I love that he's ver, like verbalizes it, you know. But he says, it's unnecessary. and I feel like often the way I could plan out would be better. And so, this is, like I said, this is right in the midst of me planning and preparing for this. And so, so then we got to say, okay, well, how about this? Haggai invites us to consider how we fare, okay? So Haggai, so, so then we say, all right, so this is your life apart from following God, apart from trusting that he's good and that his way is good for you. And how do you fare whenever you're living in that state? And he thinks about it. And I remember he said, well, I guess it would be neutral at best, but usually it's like down in the dumps. It kind of sucks, to be honest. Um, this is just maybe just coasting, like on autopilot. Right? So that's what life tends to be like when we're trying to figure things out for ourselves. We're not trusting God. We're not putting our faith in His goodness and His plan for our lives. What about over here? Whenever you are taking your satisfaction, your joy in Him, and, you, and you're trusting in the plan He's got for you. And He says, well, often that's really hard. Right? So He says, here is neutral and bad. But here, over here can be really hard, but also it comes with this peace that passes understanding. It comes with a sense of purpose and knowing that I am walking in a way that's good and right. And it comes with a joy. And a joy, see, a joy is something that can last in spite of the hard times. In spite of difficult things, there's a joy that kind of like comes with that because we have his presence. And so just as we were talking through that, it just, we were holding him out. It just became so obvious. Like, this way, why would I do, why would I ever live like this? Why don't I trust that God's way is good for me and that what he has is the best way for my life? Why don't we just live like that? So often we don't believe that Jesus is actually better. We forget that he's actually promised us that when we seek him first, when we give him our undivided loyalty and affection, that he will bless us. And I'm not talking prosperity gospel. I'm not saying he's going to drop a Tesla in your lap. Maybe, I don't know. But, uh, but he, he promises us something way better than a Tesla. He, he's promised his presence, okay? That's, and that's all we need. Like, that's really all we need. He promises that he will be the one to satisfy you. So what's our takeaway now here, 2,500 years later? Matthew 5, 8 says, like I said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus is saying, you want to see God? You want to know me? Turn your heart to me. Give me your undivided loyalty and affection, and let me be the one that satisfies you.
All right, so let's sum up so far. Uh, God has confronted us of our inverted priorities um, and uh, called us into kingdom purity, uh, undivided uh, inverted priorities and undivided loyalty. And so what's all this for? So why do we do all this? This constant examination of our priorities, always checking our hearts to make sure our loyalties and affections are undivided. I mean, like Philip said, following God is hard. It's not easy. If it's easy, you're probably doing something wrong, you know? But it's good. It's the divine life that he's called us to is good. And it's the only life, really, that's worth living. And so if it's so difficult, why do we bother going to such extreme lives? Because, because of, well, speaking of segues, let's go into uh, kingdom promise, okay? We, it's because of the promise that he's given us. And the promises have already been wrapped up in these, uh, these first two sections that we've gone through. Um, but we're going to hone in on a couple of the promises in this last section. Um, and this is uh, in Haggai uh, 1, 12, uh, I'm sorry, 2, 1 through 9. So the Lord gives Haggai another message for the people. Now this is after the people have repented, okay? This is after the people have turned their hearts to the Lord. They went to work on the temple. They obeyed. Now, so apparently, so what had happened after uh, about a month of building, the people became very uh, discouraged. And the people either stopped building the temple or they just grew slack in their work. They, they kind of um, held up on it. So verse 3 says, Who is left among you? Who saw, so God is telling the people, Who is left among you who has seen this house, meaning the temple that they're working on? Who is left among you who has seen this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Okay, ouch. You know, we're trying our best here. Like, like we, so we actually learn in Ezra what's going on. Um, this story plays out in the first few chapters of Ezra. So the old men, so they'd gone to work on building the temple, and the old men who had seen the temple, who made the trip back from, uh, from Babylon, who had seen the temple in its former glory, they see this new structure that they're working on, that they're building, and they actually began weeping. They were so upset about it. They, they, they just knew that there is absolutely no way this new work that we're working on, it's never going to compare even close to the glory and how awesome the, the, the Temple of Solomon was. And they were weeping. It devastated them. They looked at this measly little structure and they knew that it's not going to amount to anything close to what it, what it used to be. So let's see uh, what God has to say to his people in the midst of their discouragement and pull from that what he wants to speak to us today, Soma Culver City. So what's going on? What's happened? The, the, the Israelites repented, right? They turned their hearts to God, gave Him their undivided loyalty. They began work on the temple. Like I said, after about a month, they quit the, or after about a month of work, the reality of their circumstances started to set in. They realized that no matter how hard they work, there's no way that what they build will ever, ever, ever compare to the Temple of Solomon. So they either lost heart or they quit or they grew slack. They figured, what's the point? Why even bother with this? So what, what are they doing here? They're, they're playing the comparison game, okay? They're saying, like, this new work that God's called us to, it's nothing compared to what he, used, what he did back here. This old work, this is where it's at. Like, God was doing this big thing here, the big temple, this new work, it's nothing. Why even bother with this? It's not going to amount to anything. You know, I think of making disciples here in this city... I think of the kingdom work that he's called us to uh, here in Los Angeles. And, you know, it, it, when things aren't going well and we're, I'm not seeing God move uh, like I had hoped, you know, things start to get difficult. 
just like the Israelites, can start comparing temples, right? I can start comparing uh, the work that God is doing in and through my life to the work that he's doing in other people's lives. And if I'm comparing, it's super easy for me to get very discouraged, right? But here's the thing. God has called us here. He's called us to this city, to this work, and this particular moment in history. You know, I mean, does anyone else feel that? You know, life circumstances aren't going well or how you think they should. You feel your ministry is just kind of fruitless, you know. You start to look around then. So my, what is my ministry? You start to look around at that pastor or that missionary, that MC leader or that other MC leader for you MC leaders. Um, and you think to yourself, look at the way God is using them. Look at the impact they're having. Am I doing anything of any real significance anyway? Am I having any impact at all? I mean, I've definitely felt that. And in fact, any time that I'm, I feel like I'm failing or I'm feeling insignificant, I start comparing temples just like the Israelites. I'll start comparing my life and ministry to others. I read, you know, it's even when I'm like reading the Bible, I read Paul, like the Apostle Paul or the other apostles, the way they lived. And I'm like, man, that, that's not me. Man. I think of these Christian missionaries um, in the past, Hudson Taylor, Lottie Moon, Jim Elliott, they were so devoted, so compassionate, and they seemed to be so effective for God's kingdom. And then I look at my life and I'm like just discouraged about that. You know, like I look at this, I don't see anyone coming to faith. You know, what's going on here? If anyone has felt like that, Haggai has really good news for you today. So let's read in in verse 4. So, like I said, these people are discouraged about the work that God's called them to. And so then God comes with a word to them in verse 4. He says, yet now, so God says, you know, it's bad. Yeah, this temple is not compared to the one before, but hey, here's verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. um, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I love this because because earlier God started off and addressed the reality of the situation, you know. He said, look out, and God's exact words were, "Is, is the temple here that you're looking at, is it as nothing in your sight, you know. God's a realist. He, 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 he's, he's addressing the reality of the situation. You know, he's not like, yeah, no, this temple, it's, it's like totally great. Like, what you're building, well, that's, that's good. Yeah, no, it's basically as good as the last one, you know. No, God addresses the reality of it. He says, yeah, we're both looking at the same thing. This doesn't compare to the old temple. It's nowhere near as beautiful. I mean, that's obvious. But guess what? You don't see what I see. You don't have my perspective. You, you, you don't know what my plans are for this temple. God's saying, stop comparing. Be strong. Work. And know that I am with you. I am calling you to this work, and therefore it is not trivial. You see, God wasn't calling them in that moment to rebuild the old temple. He was calling them to a new work, right? A new work that he had called them to. And in the moment that it was happening, it looked trivial. It looked like it wasn't going to amount to anything. It didn't look like, it, like any kind of big, awesome thing. It looked, looked paltry. And this is where the promise comes in. God says, be strong and work and know that I am with you. I'm calling you to this work. He promises his presence. But then this is where it gets really exciting for me as I was reading this. So, uh, so that, first of all, he promises us his presence. But then verse 6, he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts. And this is the plans he has for the temple. 
He says, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all nations will come in. Now that's kind of an unfortunate translation actually. Uh, um, Doesn't capture, I think, what's actually going on. I actually prefer the KJV for this one. It says, and I will shake the nations and the desired of all nations shall come in. Then it goes on to say, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. What a promise. So God is saying, God is saying to his people, yeah, things are hard now. This isn't looking good. I know it looks bleak, but be strong, work and build. Why? Because I'm with you, first of all, that I'm, you've got my presence, the blessing of God, the one thing you need, you've got, you've got me. God is the giver of life, joy, satisfaction, and salvation. And he promises himself to us. And you, and you might be thinking, you might be thinking, wait a second, he's not promising that to us, he's promising that to the Israelites. And if you were thinking that, that's good, bravo. Because we want to be true to what the text says. We don't just want to take it and say, oh, that, that's a promise for me, Right? What's cool about this specific text is that this is not a promise to us, but this is actually a promise that's about us. Verse 7 says, uh, and, and the desired, he says, I'm about to shake the nations, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to bring, he says, uh, verse 7, then the desired of all nations shall come in. What's Haggai talking about here when he says, the desired of all nations shall come in? He's talking about us, the church. We are the desired of all nations and we have been brought into God's family through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then it goes on in 9 to say the latter glory will be far, far outweigh the former glory. You see, we are this new temple. We are the new temple of God. And they had no idea what they were building. See, and, and these people living in 520 BC, no doubt that they thought, they thought that God was talking about a magnificent temple that would be built up. And what's interesting is actually God did like... That prophecy did come true in that sense too. Like um, in the first century, like the, the new temple was incredible. Probably did um, outdo the old temple. But that's not what Haggai is talking about here. So we living in 2017 have the wonderful gift of perspective, right? So we know that the foundation that these people were laying in 520 BC, the very steps they were building would one day have the feet of God walking on them. They had no idea. They didn't know what they were building. These people had no idea the role they were playing in redemption, in redemptive history. God comes to these people. He says, I know things are hard. I know you're discouraged. Put your hope in me. Be strong and build because I've got big plans for what, what's going on right here. Now, if that people back then had any reason to doubt God's presence, we don't. We don't have that luxury to doubt God's presence. The Israelites were putting their faith in a future messianic king that would one day come and confront human evil and injustice and set the world right again. But today we actually get to know that God is with us because he came here 2,000 years ago. He rebuilt his temple, not with stones or a foundation laid by human hands, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the creator, right? Jesus, the cornerstone of the new temple. First Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Bible promises, and Jesus promises that he is with you. 
No matter how hard things may seem right now, no matter what sin you may be struggling with, no matter how trivial or ineffective you feel like your ministry may be right now, brothers and sisters, let us be strong and work and know that God is with us in the work that he's called us to. I want to be super clear here. It's not our work that makes us right with God. It is purely the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes us right with God, but he's also saved us for a purpose. Church, he's called us to this city to to build his kingdom, to love, to serve, and to share the good news of Jesus and to make more disciples. And it may not seem as effective or as fruitful as you had hoped it would be, but just like the Israelites, we uh, we don't have God's perspective. And the work he's calling you to is not trivial. So be encouraged. Continue to pray for your family and friends. Continue faithfully to pursue that coworker. Continue loving your neighbors and continue sharing the hope that you have in Jesus. And do so knowing that God is moving and working in ways that you don't see and indeed you couldn't even comprehend. Maybe you walked in here today and you're struggling with like inverted priorities like we talked about at the beginning. You're focused on yourself. You know that your loyalties are divided and Jesus doesn't have your affection. Or maybe you're just discouraged in the work that God has called you to. I believe Haggai is inviting us today to repent of our inverted priorities and our divided loyalties, to turn our hearts to the only one who can truly satisfy us and to joyfully engage in the kingdom work that he's called us to. In this city, to take, so basically, to sum it up, he says, take courage, build for you, build more than you see. All right, I'm gonna pray for us. Father, um, thank you so much that you care so much that you have been sending prophets and you've been sending uh you've given us your word and ultimately the word made flesh in jesus uh two thousand years ago you came for us thank you that uh yeah that even though our our priorities get out of whack and that our our loyalties become divided that you don't abandon us you don't leave us but you faithfully pursue us and you put us under your discipline because you love us god and thank you so much for that and i pray that as as your church, as a body of believers, that we would be joyfully engaging uh, in the kingdom work that you've called us to here in this city. And knowing that, that uh, and I pray that we wouldn't compare temples, God. I pray that we would look and know that this work that you've called us to is significant. And, that you, and if you've called us to it, it's worth doing. So I pray that we would joyfully serve you knowing that you first served us, Jesus, and that you love us so deeply that you would die for us. And pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.